time to meet the beautiful women who want to be Miss USA 2011. I love pageants. I love the performance of it all. Vaseline on the teeth to keep you smiling, a can of hairspray and an avalanche of bobby pins to help your hair defy gravity. Katie Hansen, 20, Newark, Delaware. Heather Swan, 23. But my favorite part is when the contestants are asked really hard-hitting questions. Not why do you want to win this pageant or where do you see yourself in five years? I'm talking more like, is healthcare a human right? Or how should our government address the national debt? Or one of my favorites from the 2011 Miss USA pageant, should evolution be taught in schools? I think little bits and pieces of evolution should be taught in schools because it is a theory. I do feel that evolution shouldn't be taught in schools just because of so many different, different views on it. Personally, I don't believe in evolution. I believe that each one of us were created for a purpose by God. When I first heard these answers, I was kind of stunned. We all live in our own little cultural bubbles, and in my bubble, evolution was not controversial. Asking if we should teach it would be like asking if algebra and spelling belong in schools. But beauty queens are far from the first to tackle this question. This debate was front and center more than a century ago when the teaching of evolution was banned in schools. Some say it sparked the culture wars. Culture wars that continue to this day. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It, a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Polanin. On May 25th, 1925, 97 years ago this week, the state of Tennessee indicted a science teacher for teaching evolution. It launched what became known as the Scopes Monkey Trial, and it got the whole country talking about what should be taught to children and what it says about who we are as Americans. Stay tuned for a heated battle about what public schools should put in our heads and ultimately our hearts. It's serious monkey business. We'll get into it after the break. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Charles Darwin presented the world with his theory of evolution in 1859 in his groundbreaking book On the Origin of Species. It took a little while for the theory to become mainstream, but by and large, by the early 20th century, most of the Western world was on board with evolution, including many Christians. The church had no problem with this. As long as God's guiding the evolutionary process, that's fine. This is Ed Larson, He's a professor of history at Pepperdine University. He wrote a book about the Scopes trial. But Ed says the tolerance for evolution changed in the late 18 and early 1900s with the emergence of a new movement, Christian fundamentalism. Fundamentalists saw evolution as a threat to the story of creationism. However, their cause was soon championed by a well-known politician, He was a boisterous, some would say blowhard populist, a famous speaker named William Jennings Bryan. He was very exuberant. He had this booming voice. He was an orator of the first caliber. I come to speak to you in defense of a cause as holy as the cause of liberty, the cause of humanity. That's a clip of Bryan's famous Cross of Gold speech. It was so influential, it boosted his political career. He was a former Nebraska congressman, secretary of state, and a three-time Democratic presidential nominee. He viewed himself as very much a common person. He didn't view himself as part of the elite. He was a devout Christian and became a spokesman for causes that many other fundamentalists cared about, like supporting the prohibition of alcohol, condemning sexual immorality, and banning evolution from being taught in public schools. A sweet, well-meaning, Christian, benevolent man like William Jennings Bryan just looked for a simple solution, and people listened to him. Starting in the 1920s, he traveled across the country, speaking widely about the dangers of evolution, including one speech he gave to state officials in Nashville, Tennessee. It's a packed house. The balconies are full, the galleries are full. Most legislators bring their family if they can because they get to hear William Jennings Bryan, the most famous speaker in America. Ed says there was one particular Darwinian idea Bryan liked to harp on. He said, well, if you teach people that they've descended from apes, how can we expect them not to act like monkeys? The crowd loved it. I mean, that was his catch line. Some of the state officials in attendance were inspired to take action. In March of 1925, the legislature passed the Butler Act, making it a crime to teach evolution in public schools and colleges in Tennessee. Though as soon as the ban was passed, one organization made it their mission to undo the law, the ACLU. But first, they needed a defendant, someone to break the law so it could be challenged. So the ACLU posted an ad in a Tennessee newspaper. The ad caught the attention of a local businessman who lived in the tiny town of Dayton, Tennessee. 
Dayton was known for farming strawberries, mining coal and iron, and not much else. It had seen better days. The businessman thought the case could be good for Dayton and pitched it to his fellow Daytonians. Let's um, host this case. Let's have a trial here in Tennessee. Reporters will come from all over. We'll attract um, business. We'll maybe get some jobs. And so that's what they did. The town just needed a fall guy, someone who they could accuse of teaching evolution. And they found one in a local science teacher named John Scopes. Scopes was a single 24-year-old white man who didn't have plans to stay in Dayton long-term. I told him about the challenge in the case and asked him if he'd volunteer to stand as the nominal defendant in such a case. So why not? Sounds like fun, sounds interesting. That same day, a warrant was drawn up for Scopes' arrest. His trial was set for that July, and the whole nation took notice. Dateline, Dayton, Tennessee, July 11th, 1925. Charles Darwin's theory that all mankind had descended from a common ancestor, a so-called missing link, had set off the fireworks. John T. Scopes, a Dayton biology teacher, had decided to test a new Tennessee law that forbade the teaching of any theory that denied the divine creation of man. On paper, this was a fight between Scopes and the state of Tennessee. But in the court of public opinion, it turned into a battle between religion versus science. And William Jennings Bryan, the fundamentalist, was a crusader on the side of religion. He volunteered as a strategist for state prosecutors. Having flung down the gauntlet, Brian smiled for the newsreels and sat down to prepare his brief. But Scopes was not to face the lions without help of his own. But the defense had their own heavy hitter, one who happened to be Brian's arch nemesis. They had a rivalry for the ages. There's Alien versus Predator, there's Brandy versus Monica, and then there's William Jennings Bryan versus Clarence Darrow. Clarence Darrow accepted Brian's challenge and hastened to Dayton to lock horns with a silver-tongued orator. Clarence Darrow, by this time, was the most famous, I guess some would say infamous, trial lawyer. He still is in American history. Like Brian, Darrow was a masterful public speaker, known to pull on heartstrings. And Ed says... Darrow knew how to draw attention to himself. Like any good trial lawyer, he had gimmicks. And his gimmick was wearing out-of-date suspenders, taking his coat off and having wide suspenders. He was just larger than life. I mean, this guy sounds like a real cartoon character. Ed says Darrow once put a wire down the middle of a cigar so the ash would get distractingly long. And when his opponent was giving a very long spellbinding closing argument, he was smoking this cigar and the ash kept getting longer and longer and longer. And the jury was just transfixed of when this ash would fall off. And of course, it never did. Darrow knew how to direct a jury's attention. And he hoped to capture the nation's attention with his trial skills, leading them away from Brian's fundamentalist arguments and towards his own belief that religious views shouldn't guide public policy. He believed that biblical morality was wrong and dangerous. And dangerous because it divided people and it made them hate one another. 
In the days before the trial was set to begin, Brian and Darrow made their way to the small town of Dayton, Tennessee. It was early July. They were hit by the South's sweltering heat and met with raucous crowds. In the streets, people have built up booths where you could throw things at, at monkeys and knock them down and win prizes. There are people with Bible stalls selling Bibles. It's just a carnival. Avid spectators from all over the nation filed in to hear the debate. The issue was no longer the innocence or guilt of Scopes, but rather the final death struggle between two basic human philosophies, fundamentalism versus modernism. Telegraph wires were strung from the courthouse, carrying news out to the public. The town even built an airstrip so they could fly out trial footage to major cities. The upcoming battle had been facetiously dubbed the monkey trial, and the public demonstrations took advantage. The crowd settled back for the titanic struggle of the two famous debaters, and they weren't to be disappointed. People were there to hear the famous speakers, Brian and Darrow. The two men pushed themselves into the courtroom, and the trial began, ironically, in prayer. Oh God, our divine Father, we recognize Thee as the supreme ruler of the universe. We are incapable alone of thinking pure thoughts or performing righteous deeds. This recording is from The Great Tennessee Monkey Trial, a play by the L.A. Theater Works, which we'll hear throughout the rest of the episode. It's inspired by the transcript of the trial, though it's not exact. Hear our prayers and grant that the President of the United States down to the most insignificant officer of this court seek thy... Brian's role was to help the prosecution with strategy. For him, it wasn't really about convicting Scopes. His hope, Ed says, was to show that the theory of evolution had been co-opted for evil. Brian's hope was to argue that Evolution and teaching of evolution and belief in evolution led to crime, led to vice, led to war, led to the exploitation of labor, led to eugenics, led to racism. That's what Brian originally was going to argue. But Ed says the rest of the prosecution didn't like the idea. They didn't think they'd find expert witnesses to defend those claims. So they switched at the last minute, and simply argue that Scopes violated the law. Darrow and the defense's strategy was more complicated. They didn't want to prove Scopes' innocence. They wanted to use the trial to show that the law undermined freedom of speech protections. Darrow added to that argument, saying church and state should be separate. The Scopes trial became a fight for America's soul. Was Brian going to convince the country to stick to its religious orthodoxy? Or would Darrow get people to embrace the teaching of evolution? For Darrow's part, he wanted to refute Brian's idea that evolution was evil. Darrow drove the point home when cross-examining one of Scopes' students. Did he tell you what distinguished mammals from other animals? Uh, I don't remember. But he said that dogs and horses and monkeys and cows and man and whales, they were all mammals. Yes, sir, but I don't know about the whales. (laughs) Well, did he tell you anything else that was wicked? No, sir. And it's not hurt you any, has it? No, sir. That's all. This was Darrow taking digs at the other side. But he was only just getting started. 
He was saving his real big swings for Brian himself. The fundamentalist gets called to the stand after the break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Welcome back. We left off with Clarence Darrow and William Jennings Bryan sparring in the trial of the century, going head-to-head in a battle of science versus religion. Well, battle, but really more like spectacle. Because these two leaned into the drama whenever they could. And that drama escalated when Darrow made an unconventional ask. The judge had thrown out the defense's scientific expert testimony. So Darrow got creative. If he couldn't examine a scientific expert, he would call on a religious one. Or at least a self-proclaimed expert on the Bible. His rival, William Jennings Bryan. And for some reason, Bryan agreed. Ed Larson, Pepperdine history professor, has his guess as to why. He thinks he's going to get questions about evolution and is it dangerous or about popular control over public schools, things like that. Instead, Darrow questioned Brian about his literal interpretations of the Bible. Darrow asked Brian a variety of standard questions that have been asked for 2,000 years. Did Joshua lengthen the day by making the sun or the earth stand still? Do you believe the world was created in six literal days within the last 10,000 years? Do you have any idea how old the earth is? No. The Bible you've introduced into evidence tells you, doesn't it? I, I, I don't think it does. Well, let's see if it does. I don't think it does. It says 4004 B.C., right uh, here. Uh, that, that, uh, that is uh, uh, Bishop Usher's calculation. Would you say that the earth was only 4004 years old? Oh, uh, no, 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 no. I, I, think I think it was much older than that. Really? How much older? I couldn't say. Brian's testimony sounded like he was admitting that the Bible shouldn't be taken literally. And the result is Brian looks like an absolute fool on the witness stand. Ed says Brian was ridiculed in the press. In a scathing report, the London Star wrote that Brian's faith, quote, might not move mountains, but it is quite sufficient to shake the flimsy foundations of a shack in Tennessee. Ouch, that's a 1920s burn if I've ever heard one. The next day, the jury was asked to deliberate. 
the jury in a matter of minutes, they don't even leave the courtroom. They convict Scopes. So John Scopes, the young teacher who volunteered for the trial, was found guilty of violating the Butler Act. And well, it wasn't that big of a deal for Scopes himself. He was fined 100 bucks, which both Brian and the ACLU offered to pay for him. And Scopes ended up leaving his teaching job, deciding to get a graduate degree instead. But again, Scopes' teaching evolution wasn't really the issue. The real impact of the trial was that it divided the country and ignited the culture wars, which would rage for decades to come. And so the culture wars were launched in Dayton, and the two sides were energized. And to this day, the issue remains a tremendously divided and divisive popular issue. And that's the legacy of the Scopes trial. Angie Maxwell, a professor of political science at the University of Arkansas, agrees. She says the real legacy is the division the trial stoked in the public consciousness. When you create that false equivalency, that you're either for us or you're against us, right? It's either the Bible or science. You know, that seemed to have some effect on kind of radicalizing the community in Dayton in a fundamentalist way. So I think you had a lot of people that weren't even big part of the anti-evolution movement. But they are afterwards. Angie says people felt like they had to choose a side. A false choice between believing in science and believing in God. And some religious people felt mocked and dismissed. Fundamentalists felt beat up. They felt ridiculed. They felt like their leader had been, you know, bullied on the stand till death, basically. Brian died in his sleep just five days after the trial ended, making him a martyr for the fundamentalist cause. The ACLU appealed Scopes' case. His conviction was overturned on a technicality, but the Tennessee law banning evolution was allowed to stand. In the few years following the Scopes trial, Conservative lawmakers across the country proposed vaguely worded bills with the aim of restricting modern ideas from public schools. Other states pass bans on evolution, but they're just like kind of those laws on the books that are theater and no one's really interested in actually enforcing them. These laws stayed on the books until the late 1960s. That's when the U.S. Supreme Court heard a challenge against Arkansas's ban on teaching evolution. The court found the law violated the First Amendment's separation of church and state. And that ruling lifted bans on the teaching of evolution nationwide. The fight around what should be taught in schools, though, that was far from over. Let's zoom forward a few decades to, oh, just last year. You believe school systems should tell children what to do. I believe parents should be in charge of their kids' education. I'm not going to let parents come into schools and actually take books out and make their own decisions. You vetoed it. So I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. In this clip from the 2021 Virginia governor's race, you hear Glenn Youngkin, then the Republican candidate, up against Terry McAuliffe, the Democratic incumbent. It's typically difficult to unseat an incumbent. But Youngkin had a strategy. 
he focused a large part of his campaign on one specific hot-button issue, parents' rights. Parents' rights is a term popular among conservative politicians at the moment, though it's been criticized as being deceptive since many parents disagree with policies claiming to protect their rights. Youngkin evoked the term in ads, in speeches, and petitions. He was tapping into parents' frustration over pandemic restrictions in schools. And he won. Friends, we're gonna embrace our parents, not ignore them. We're gonna press forward with a curriculum that includes listening to parents' input, a curriculum that allows our children to run as fast as they can, teaching them how to think. Public schools across the country have become a battleground for conservative politicians. Lawmakers in Iowa, Missouri, and a handful of other states are proposing funding cuts to schools that use the New York Times' award-winning 1619 Project, which examines the legacy of slavery in U.S. history. And in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis signed what's known as the Don't Say Gay Bill into law, forbidding teachers from discussing sexual orientation and gender identity before the fourth grade. Variations of these restrictions are being copied around the country. Angie says these tactics tap into some really intense feelings and activate parents regardless of where they stand on the issue. It's very much meant to cause anxiety and distress and enrage parents. You know, you can just see the anger, and I think a lot of that has been manufactured. Manufactured, Angie says, and that it's more about political theater than actual substantive policy. It's an important distinction, one that was clear, at least to some, when this culture war began almost a century ago. At the conclusion of the Scopes trial, some newspapers covered it like a performance. One New York Times reporter wrote, Each side withdrew at the end of the struggle, satisfied that it had unmasked the absurd pretensions of the other. Other articles dismissed the trial altogether, saying it was, quote, a trivial thing full of humbuggery and hypocrisy. Now, I don't know exactly what humbuggery means, but I have a sneaking suspicion it still applies. Because all this performance, it distorts. It leaves us with a discourse charged up in fear and anxiety and anger. And if the U.S. claims democracy as this great American tradition, it's got to claim political theater as well. It, too, is an American tradition. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. This episode was produced by Sarah Craig. Next week, we're revisiting our story about AIDS vax, the AIDS vaccine that almost was. Every year, there was some institution or business, you know, coming forward, raising people's hope that they have the lead on some research that's going to produce the HIV vaccine. The rest of our team are associate producers Ramoy Phillip and Julie Carley. Laura Newcomb is our production assistant. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. 
Editing by Annie Gilbertson, Andrea B. Scott, and Zach Stewart-Pontier. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Hansdale Shee. Original music by Sax Kicks Av, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toko Liana by Coco Co. With music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Matt Schiltz. We used excerpts from the Great Tennessee Monkey Trial audio docudrama provided by LA Theatre Works. The complete piece is available for purchase at latw.org. Special thanks to Susan Epperson, Tom Davis, Adam Latz, and to Lydia Polgreen, Abby Ruzica, Dan Behar, Jen Hahn, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Joshua Bianchi. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. And while you're there, hey, why don't you rate us five stars? You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Palanen. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. John Scopes disagreed with the law, but he wasn't very political. And uh, he was not uh, particularly religious. He said afterwards that he did go to church occasionally where he could, as he put it, not my words, as he put it, it's a nice nice place to pick up girls.